Hello, I'm Ian Hartley. And I'm Warren Kay. Welcome to the Rediscovering God podcast. We invite you to join us as we endeavor to see him more clearly, love him more dearly, and follow him more nearly. You will notice the sound quality on our track today is not uh, what you have come to expect, but I assure you that neither one of us were exposed to a coronavirus in the recording of this podcast as we were able to both stay in our individual homes and use different technology to bring this to you. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, Warren. I've been thinking about births and rebirths um, the last few days, and I thought we might do uh, this podcast on those two concepts. Sure. That sounds like a good idea. So, um, this famous chapter on rebirth is found in John chapter 3, and it starts right out with verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. So we learn quite a bit about this man uh, just from this brief statement. Contrary to the way we see Pharisees today, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were the heroes of Israel uh, because they'd been uh, prominent in the Maccabean revolt. And so they were really admired by the Israelites of that time. So we tend to look down on them. Apparently, Nicodemus was also a politician of note. It says there he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. Uh, tradition has it that Nicodemus was rich enough to feed Jerusalem in case of a famine for 10 years, which wow. gives you some idea of his wealth. So I don't think it's far-fetched to say that he had thoughts of possibly being the next high priest. Uh, which at this time could actually be uh, uh, bought if you had enough money. Mm. I did some research on the Pharisees and discovered that there were never more than 6,000 of them. And there uh -huh. were two groups of people. There were the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes uh -huh. studied and determined what, what rules should be kept. And the Pharisees committed themselves to keeping all the rules. So they were the elite of the Jewish people. Yes, and they, they are, I believe, prayed twice a week in public on mm -hmm. the street corners. Um, so they really were the creme de la creme of the community and very supportive of the law. Mm -hmm. So verse 2 says, He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. So I don't know what you think about why he came at night. Well, I think that he, he had a personal interest in connecting with Jesus. If, if it was an official position as a Pharisee that he was coming to check him out, to see if he was the Messiah, he wouldn't have worried about being at night. But I think he had a personal the spirit was drawing him to connect with Jesus and he was very curious and wanted to talk with him. Okay. Now you're much kinder than I am on his motivation. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he has ulterior motives and I'll, I'll show you why I think that in just a minute. Okay. I don't believe he wanted to be seen consulting Jesus in daylight. Uh, he has not acknowledged that Jesus is Messiah. Mm -hmm. He does, however, acknowledge that Jesus uh, is connected with God. Mm -hmm. uh, he calls him a teacher. He doesn't say, you are the Messiah. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but, but let me move on to the next. Well, to continue verse 2, he is a... His argument for saying is God connected is no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. So 
the only sign I know of that's recorded up to this point uh, of John chapter 3 is the wedding at Cana. Uh, but Nicodemus uses the plural here, so there must have been other signs. Well, I, I read a commentator or commentary that says that Nicodemus saw Jesus in the temple when he, when he cleansed the temple just earlier in the previous chapter. Okay. And, and when, when, the, when the temple was cleansed, there were the sick and the poor didn't leave. And yeah. he healed those, poor, those sick people that were there. So perhaps Nicodemus was a witness of those miracles that Jesus performed. Okay. Very good. I'd forgotten about that. Mm -hmm. So Nicodemus's faith in Jesus is based on miracles. Now, what's really interesting to me is that uh, uh, the church growth people have uh, done long-term studies on the effect of miraculous healings on a person's faith. And in their long-term studies, very few people who've been miraculously healed retain their faith. It's almost as if miracles uh, don't really grow your faith much. Oh, really? And that's sort of corroborated by all the people that Jesus healed and cast uh, demons out of, uh, fed and so on. They all seemed to disappear when he needed them most. Mm -hmm. So uh, I like you taking... Um, a very kind view of his motivation. I, I think Nicodemus is thinking of having Jesus on his campaign team uh, for the election of the high priest. Hmm. <laughs> well, you know, it, that's a possibility for sure. So this is, I mean, imagine if you have somebody on your team who can feed everybody miraculously and heal anybody who gets ill and, uh, and and this is why I think that Jesus apparently ignores uh, Nicodemus's trend of conversation because when he replies he says uh, I tell you the truth this is verse 3 no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again so for me this is a real hiatus. Uh, Nicodemus is going along one direction and Jesus just seems to ignore it. Right, yeah. He, he just kind of cuts to the chase and says, you know what, you, you've got no chance of seeing the kingdom unless you're born again. Yeah. So the, I believe the, the clue to this uh, sort of uh, break away by Jesus into a, another uh, train of thought is found at the end of chapter 2. And chapter 2, don't you want to read that, 23 to 25? Sure. Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. So what I think is happening now is that uh, John's just written this down, and this is the end of chapter 2, and now in chapter 3, he shows you that Jesus knew what was going on in Nicodemus's heart, mm. and then in chapter 4, he'll show you that Jesus knew what was going on in the Samaritan's woman's heart, uh, and this is to back up uh, the statement that's made at the end of chapter 2. Mm, that's a great tie-in with that, that conclusion of chapter 2. That's excellent. You now, one of the problems of having chapter divisions, and of course, the writings that we have in the Bible didn't have the chapter and verse divisions. The chapter divisions were put in, I believe, about 1200 uh, AD, and the verse divisions... Uh, few hundred years later. Uh, sometimes when you get a chapter division, uh, it's not really a natural division. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
this is one case in point here. Another one is chapter 14 of John, where it starts out, let not your heart be troubled. But the previous verses in chapter 13 is talking about Peter is going to deny him um, before three times before the cock crows in the morning. Right. Uh, and so the, the dialogue just continues. Let not your heart be troubled. This is a very powerful uh, encouragement because even when, because of your cowardice or whatever you want to call it, embarrassment, you deny the Lord, Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. I find that incredible. Yeah. Yeah, that is a very powerful connection to realize one flows right after the other, that Jesus is saying, even yeah. when you denied me, don't let your heart be troubled. I've got a place for you. Yeah. So getting back to verse 3, in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So this is verse 3. Um, Jesus is going to repeat this two more times in verse 5 and 7. So you have this uh, gospel imperative repeated three times. You mm -hmm. can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Now, we, we've read this story or we've been exposed to it so many times that I don't think we always appreciate what an exquisitely chosen metaphor birth is. You know, Jesus could have chosen many others, but uh, the miracle of physical birth uh, is quite remarkable. And I've just written down some points here about when a person is born. First of all, your life is initiated by other people than yourself. Mm -hmm. um, you conceived by your parents, it was their idea, not yours. Uh, and then when you're born, you move from the darkness of the womb to the light of day. You move from being blind to being able to see. You move from the warmth of the womb to hopefully not to cold an environment. And it's actually a traumatic transition. Uh, I'm sure you get that the parallels to all this in the spiritual rebirth. Right. So you, you also move from this prison where you are encapsulated uh, in your mother's womb and you have to go everywhere she goes to the freedom of being a separate individual. Mm -hmm. Of course, you don't realize that when you're first born, but sooner or later you come to understand that. And then you move from dependence to independence. It's the start of your visible life, but you're already nine months old. That's always interesting to me. The Chinese uh, give your length of life nine months more than we do in the West. Mm. And when you're born, you generally bring joy to others. So I, I see uh, very close parallels in this, uh, in the... Uh, in the spiritual birthing of a person. Uh, and so here they are, they con you're conceived by the spirit, it happens outside of you and at the spirit's initiative, mm -hmm. and you move from spiritual darkness to spiritual light, you move from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight, you move from the cold of your uh, dead heart to the warmth of a reborn heart and you move from the prison of sin to the freedom of salvation you move from independence in quotes to dependence mm. um, it's a traumatic transition for many people uh, and i have to concede that for some people they're not even aware that this is happening but if I think of Saul on the Damascus Road, that was quite traumatic for him. Yes. And then when your spiritual life becomes visible to yourself and others, 
uh, that isn't when it starts. Uh, it started some time, and who knows how long it's been birthing and growing inside of you. Mm -hmm. And of course, in Luke 15, on the three stories of losts, the, Jesus states there's joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. Mm -hmm. So there are quite a few parallels there between your physical birth and your spiritual birth. So there's, there's many layers embedded in this whole um, symbolism that Jesus has uh, talked about. Yes, very much so. Mm -hmm. so uh, that's why I think this metaphor is exquisitely chosen. Uh, because it's got all these parallels that's happening there. And the, the biggest uh, characteristic of this metaphor, uh, as I see it, is that uh, you can't say to somebody, go and be physically born. Mm -hmm. It's not something a person can do. And I believe that's why Jesus chose this metaphor, mm -hmm. is that you can't say to somebody, well, you better be spiritually reborn. Go and do it. It's not something you can do. It's the miracle that happens in your heart. Uh, and you sometimes you're unaware of it actually happening there at the time. Yeah, that's, that's very fascinating to realize the, the um, insights that we can get about our spiritual rebirth by looking at our physical birth, as you uh, yeah. described there. So you want to read verse 4? So how can a man be born when he's old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Uh, either Nicodemus has no idea what's going on here or is playing for time. Mm. Yeah, he doesn't you know, seem to get it at all. No. So Nicodemus probably knew about John the Baptist but he didn't make the connection between this being born again and uh, being baptized mm -hmm. uh, didn't seem to help him at all. So I was thinking about um, times when I've been uh, totally mystified by something uh, in the Bible. Uh, I just couldn't comprehend it at the time. Uh, recently, I was uh, reading Tolstoy about his take on the Sermon on the Mount. You know, Tolstoy was a military man and a judge, and he became a Christian at the age of 50. And so he writes a couple of books, and they all focus on the Sermon on the Mount, and more specifically, uh, the statement by Jesus, do not resist an evil person. Mm -hmm. and Warren, I have to say to you, I don't comprehend this. I, I feel like I'm Nicodemus listening to Jesus say, you must be born again, when it comes to this, do not resist an evil person. I just can't get my head around it, uh, what that actually means for me. And that's a very humbling realization to, to hear something and realize, you know what, I, I don't get it, I don't understand what they're talking about. Yeah, you're right. I, I really feel very humble about this in my own personal life that I'm almost 80 years old and I don't understand one of the primary statements that Jesus made, do not resist an evil person. Mm -hmm. So verse 5 says, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, this is the second time, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the spirit. So as soon as one mentions water and the spirit here, uh, most people uh, believe this is an allusion to baptism. Um, but it's not. Uh, you can, of course, use it like that homiletically. But the reason I'm so sure it isn't baptism and being born again by the spirit is because of what the next verse says. Next verse says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Now there you can see that uh, Jesus is very clearly 
differentiating between physical births and spiritual births. Mm -hmm. uh, is that clear to you? Or? Yeah, it is. It is very much. I, I've, I've actually wondered or believed that for some time, that I didn't think that the baptism fit. It just seems yeah. to be he's talking about you need to be physically born and then you need to be spiritually born. Yeah, yeah. So um, one of the characteristics of Hebrew literature, and although the New Testament is written in Greek, it's written by Hebrew people. So they're still using those literary devices that uh, the Old Testament writers use. The, the one great characteristic of Hebrew literature is parallelism, where you restate what you've said, uh, sometimes in the negative, sometimes in the positive. So verse five, it says, you must be born of water and the spirit. Verse six says, Flesh gives birth to flesh. It's talking about the water just before the baby's born. Uh, woman's amniotic sac breaks and the water gushes out. And so that's just a, a, a quick way of saying physical births, being born of water. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So, having chosen this metaphor, uh, we need to re-emphasize that spiritual birth is not something we must do, but an ongoing miracle from God, just like the birth of a, any mammal uh, that we're familiar with. So like you've said already, there's this necessity for physical birth uh, and also the spiritual birth that Jesus is making. So verse 7 says, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Um, this is the third time that Jesus repeats the gospel imperative of you must be born again. Of course, uh, stating something three times was a literary device to show its importance. According to tradition, uh, if you divorced your uh, wife, all you had to do was state with witnesses, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and that accomplished it. Also in the Old Testament, two, at least two witnesses were required uh, for any accusation, which meant the accuser and two witnesses, which meant three uh, people who were witnessing to uh, the aggravation. So this formula of three times is used very often. Of course, it also appears in the Trinity and the false Trinity in Revelation and three angels and so on. So it's a very common literary device. I, I was thinking about the formulas for salvation. Uh, like one is repent and be baptized, John 3.16, whosoever believeth. There seem to be lots of formulas in the New Testament for salvation. I particularly thought of Romans 10 verse 9. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a very interesting, there seem to be two requirements there. One is that Jesus is Lord. Uh, when you declare that, you at the same time declare that you are his uh, servant and uh, your prayer each day would be uh, Jesus what can I do for you today um, that's a little different to most prayers which go with uh, Jesus this is what I want you to do for me today right correct and, <laughs> yeah sort of stands it's on its head and then the second part is you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead well, that was an impossibility. If Jesus died for the sins of the world, uh, it would have to be the eternal death. And uh, that enormity seems to have come upon Jesus when he cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Certainly the disciples didn't believe he was going to be raised. Mm -hmm. They'd given up all hope. Um, so this believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead 
in plain English means you believe that God can do the impossible, which he did in raising Jesus. So right now it feels like uh, COVID-19 will last forever, um, but God will raise us up from this devil-inspired catastrophe uh, too. Right. And then, yeah, so, and then you have this imperative, you will be saved. I don't know, how do you react to Romans 10 verse 9, Warren? Well, I, I think um, it's certainly, you know, you, you, to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord um, is it kind of like this rebirth thing of realizing, because for most people, they are Lord, and to yeah. allow Jesus to be Lord does turn life on its head. Yeah, like being reborn, where life yeah. is completely different than it was before, uh, and it's sort of supernatural. Yes, yeah, and then believing that God can do the impossible. Um, both of those, I think, are yeah, very very significant. So you want to read verse eight. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So this analogy doesn't work for us very well anymore because the weather report predicts um, the speed of the wind and the direction for tomorrow. But in Jesus' day, that they had no way of predicting that. So the, the point is that you can't predict uh, how the Spirit's going to move from which direction uh, and so on. So every now and then we're very surprised at somebody who's uh, suddenly born again. Uh, of course, uh, Saul on the Damascus Road is probably the best example of the unpredictability of the spirits moving when this great enemy of the Christian church uh, suddenly allows himself to be reborn. I, I see an analogy when I was a teenager. Uh, I used to wonder if I'd ever fall in love and if I fell in love, would I know? And my older friends all told me with great certainty that when it happens, you know it's happened. So mm -hmm. they were right. Did you know when you'd fallen in love or did the lady have to tell you? No, you know, it's very interesting. People say, oh, well, you'll know. And, and you do. It, it's just so true. Yeah. So I'm sure you live in delicious expectation of the spirit moving and working in your life. Um, I do. Uh, when I was younger, I used to hear... Uh, my elders in the church talking about the latter rain. Did you hear that when you were younger? Yes, yeah. Yeah. So we still live in that expectation that one day the Spirit will move uh, in us and we'll be able to witness to the wonder of God. And I, I want to remind you that's the Spirit's responsibility. and. Uh, I suppose there are ways of living that could make it more probable uh, if you're completely preoccupied with yourself and what you, your own agenda in life, uh, you would be somewhat deaf to the Spirit's voice. Mm -hmm. And I, I really like so, the idea that it is the Spirit's responsibility. It, it moves it from being our responsibility to, to try to be reborn and, and, and moves it from being good advice to good news, that it, it's the Spirit's responsibility and that it will happen. Okay, now I want to come back to that. Um, uh, many people uh, ask, often silently, how do I know if I've been born of the Spirit? Mm. So how would you answer that? Well, I, I think of 1 John 4, and... Um, I think it's uh, verse, verse 12, where it says, No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, 
and his love is brought to full expression in us. So there, when we are born of the Spirit, there is a love there that is evident in our lives for other people, for God and, and for uh, his family that, that is around us. And, uh, and I think that's an evidence that when we are born of the Spirit, that that will be uh, evident in our lives. So um, you probably don't have this problem, but every now and then I run into somebody that's really annoying and I don't feel I have much love for them in my heart. Um, does that mean I've died in the spirit? And how should I relate to that? I don't think it means that you've died in the spirit, but the spirit is calling us to, um, to love them. Uh, some people are harder to love than others. But if we didn't, if the Spirit wasn't working in our life, we wouldn't even be aware that we're not loving in the way that we know we should. That's a good point. Uh, my response is that I, I pray to the, the Lord to continue His good work uh, to burst that corner of my heart mm -hmm. that needs bursting again. So there's another evidence. Um, this one I really like. On the day of Pentecost, the emphasis is always on other oh, people spoke in different languages and people could hear them in their own language. But seldom do I hear anybody ask, what were the disciples who had been touched by the Spirit actually saying? So in Acts 2 verse 11, it says this, and we all hear these people speaking in our own languages, and here it comes, about the wonderful thing God has done. Of course, they're speaking about uh, Jesus. So the, the external arrival of the Spirit is uh, when we are preoccupied with telling other people about the wonder of Jesus. That is the true touch of the spirit on our tongue. Yes. Yeah, good point. Because it, it really, the spirit it, it goal is to enable us to speak well of God and to talk about Jesus. Yeah. So uh, I've, I was thinking about how the spirit has blown in my life. Uh, you know, I didn't have any choice over my parents or the, my place of birth or my gender, or my ethnicity, or when I would be born. Um, those were all beyond uh, my choice. But in this one area, I do have choice, and that is when the Spirit blows in my life. I can choose to uh, abort it, delay it, reject it, and that may happen at 11 years or 88 years. And then I got to wondering uh, about specific instances where the Spirit has blown in my life. And perhaps you can think of a few. I remember as a small boy watching my father before he left the house, he would take his Bible and read maybe one or two minutes out of it, close it, put it down and then say goodbye to us and be on his way. Uh, that really impressed me as a young child, and the Spirit was blowing into my heart. And it, it became my uh, custom quite early in life. Mm -hmm. Can you think of ways the Spirit has blown into your life? I can remember listening to that series of uh, Week of Prayer uh, on cassette by Morris Venden. And, oh, really? Yeah, and it, it just, I, I heard things I'd never heard before. And I started yeah. practicing what he was recommending, and the Spirit began working in my life and started changing my life. I was so amazed. It was, it was quite astounding. Yeah. Uh, my parents, who lived way out in the bush, sent me to an Adventist high school. Uh, that was a good move. At the high school, um, I heard the story of Jesus, his life and death. I don't remember much emphasis on his resurrection, but certainly on his death. 
and that really impressed me. And I purposed in my teenage heart that uh, I would do something with my life <clears throat> as a sort of a repayment for what Jesus had done for me. Not sure if that's the right motivation, but mm -hmm. that's how I felt about it at the time. And looking back, that was the spirit moving in my heart. So it seems to me the spirit is always pressing for rebirth as a process in our hearts. And uh, he is our comforter, our inspiration, uh, our counselor, uh, pointing us in the right way internally and sometimes externally and that our real choice lies in our ability to refuse the process and if we don't refuse it um, the spirits can have his way with us mm -hmm. and i think it's important to realize that we do have a part to play uh, we can resist the spirit uh, but if we allow the spirit to do its work, it will, it will bring about this rebirth in our lives. Yes. So um, we're going to end the session in a few minutes with a quote from Ellen White on that process. But right now we're on verse 9 and 10. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. Uh, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these, these things? Like Nicodemus really seems to have a barrier in his mind. He, he just doesn't get what Jesus is talking about. And yet it seems so elementary to Jesus. Do, do you get that feeling in this dialogue? Well, it, it really, um, you know, your suggestion that Nicodemus was politically motivated. He, he, his mind was totally on a different track. He, yeah. he, and he just couldn't wrap his mind around what Jesus was trying to say, that it was not about building a kingdom. It wasn't about position and power. It was about a personal experience. And that he just couldn't wrap his mind around what he was talking about. Yeah, the two participants in this dialogue are thinking on entirely different interest levels. Yeah. They, they're just not connecting. Um, so verse 11, would you read that, please? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. So... I wonder about the we. We speak of what we know. And I thought that possibly Jesus is referring to God himself and the Holy Spirit mm. when he says we. Uh, for God did speak at his baptism and said, this is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. And that voice was audible to some people because we have a record of it. Mm -hmm. And the Holy Spirit is drawing Nicodemus in spite of his own motivation. So the we is the three witnesses of the Trinity that are working for every man and woman's heart. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know what Jesus means when he says, uh, but still you people do not accept our testimony. Maybe he's a bit frustrated. Uh, that Nicodemus can be so dull in these matters. Well, it, you know, maybe Jesus was hoping here is the here is a man with great influence, great um, ability. He was looked up to by the people. If he could grasp this, he could be. Maybe Jesus was trying to recruit him onto his team, uh, as much as Nicodemus was trying to recruit Jesus onto his. Yeah. In, in fact, there is a, um, I'm watching a uh, video series on the life of Jesus that's just being created. The first season is done, and, and, and in that story, Jesus invites, Jesus invites Nicodemus to become one of the twelve, and, and he, he hangs back, he refuses, and, and doesn't, doesn't follow him. Yeah. 
Well, it's a good thing we know the rest of the story. We don't feel so judgmental about Nicodemus because yeah. of what happened later. Right. I've spoken to you earthly things and you do believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? So the, the earthly things that Jesus has spoken about is uh, this uh, spiritual rebirth that happens in a person's life if we will permit it what the heavenly things are i don't know do you know no don't know you know in education we have this uh, uh, saying that you need to move from the known to the unknown from the simple to the complex from the concrete to the abstract and jesus seems to be trying to do that without much success with uh, Nicodemus. And then he refers to, you do not believe. And of course, it's referred to in John 3.16, a bit later, so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So this believing uh, is uh, an understanding or a comprehending uh, of something in which you put your faith. You want to read verse 13? Sure. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. So we know from the witness of Scripture that Enoch, Moses, and Elijah were taken to heaven, but they did not go there on their own merit. This was an act of grace, a supernatural event for them. Mm. So I believe what Jesus is saying is the only person who has right to heaven is the Son of Man. Mm. He could go there. Uh, he could uh, incarnate himself because he's God and probably appear as an angel and go to heaven and love the beings there. And then he came down here to save us. And what I got out of this is that I can only get to heaven if I'm taken there by Jesus. I cannot go there on my own good motivation or sincere best effort. It is a supernatural work uh, that needs to be done for me. And I need to remember this when I, I feel that I haven't been born again sufficiently, is that my future is dependent upon my Savior and not upon my own moral success in this life. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of the difference between going there and being taken there. Good point. Mm -hmm. yeah. You want to read 14 and 15? Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So this reference um, is problematic. You know, um, if you think about it, the snakes were biting the people in the desert. So Moses is told to put a golden or a brass snake on a pole and lift it up so that everyone who looked to the, the snake on the pole could be healed of their snake bite. Now, my human reaction would be, uh, the snake's the problem. Uh, what good does it do to look at the problem? What I need is a doctor who has anti-venom or mm -hmm. life support uh, to deal with the poison of the snake. Why focus on the problem? Did you ever have that problem? Yeah, I've, I've puzzled about why God would have him use the snake, like you say, who was the problem, and, and, and lift it up. And yeah, it just didn't make sense to me. Mm. But then um, Jesus took the problem onto the cross. Um, he took our, our body, uh, our body with all its consequences of sin, 
And of course, there's a big debate always on what sort of a body he actually took. But at least I know he was less than six feet tall. And uh, he didn't have the vigor uh, uh, that Adam's body had. Mm -hmm. And so whatever you believe about what kind of body Jesus took, uh, he took the human body uh, that was in existence 2,000 years ago. And he took that. That's our problem because we're born and right in this body, we have the sinful nature. That's uh, the problem in our lives. So he takes, and I, I don't imply by that that Jesus had a sinful nature. Uh, I have to be very careful here. Um, but Jesus takes the problem and the problem is then lifted up on the cross. And the assurance is that Jesus has dealt with the problem. He rises again, and that's the solution. He's triumphed over the problem. Mm. And so he's now my savior, and he can do for me what I cannot do for myself, which is get myself a new body without a sinful nature. Mm. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting parallel between the snake on the pole and Jesus on the cross. And, and, and what Jesus accomplished on the cross was, um, was very significant. I think, you know, as, as he says, it, just like Moses lifted up the snake, the Son of Man will be lifted up, and everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus himself said, uh, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all unto me. And yeah. so there's things that were happening there that are, are really complex and hard to understand, I think. Yeah, there were cosmic consequences for what was happening. Yeah. You know, when, you, when an Israelite looked at the snake on the pole um, and was healed, it was because he believed that God was bigger than the problem. Mm. And many people look at the cross and it really doesn't make sense to them. Uh, you know, how can one man dying on a cross, which was a common form of execution, and thousands of people were crucified every year, even hundreds in Israel. Uh, how could one man dying on a cross be the solution to our greatest problem? Mm -hmm. But when you believe, when you understand, comprehend what happened again, it is the solution. Not mm -hmm. only a cosmic solution, but also a very personal solution. I just want to emphasize again that Jesus is your savior when you believe that he does for you what you cannot do for yourself. That is the definition of a savior. The savior is much more than a helper. Uh, for instance, a commercial airline pilot is my savior to get me from A to B in the aircraft. I, I sit down, put my seatbelt on, and trust him to do for me what I cannot do for myself, namely fly by flapping my arms to get from Calgary to Amsterdam. Or if I have a brain tumor, the neurosurgeon becomes my savior. A dentist may be able to pull his own tooth, but uh, no one has ever been able to deal with the brain tumor on their own. You need a savior to do that. Right. So in my spiritual birth, I need a savior. I need somebody to do for me what I cannot do for myself. For sure. Yeah. And it, I think it's important to acknowledge that, that he, he is our savior. He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He's not just our example to make us, uh, show us how to try harder. He does for us what we can't do. Yeah. Yeah. So you drew my attention to this quote by Alan White in Desire of the Ages, page 176, which is very appropriate to end our podcast. 
how then are we to be saved? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man has been lifted up, and everyone who has been deceived and bitten by the serpent may look and live. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. John 1, 29. The light shining from the cross reveals the love of God. His love is drawing us to himself. If we do not resist this drawing, we shall be led to the foot of the cross in repentance for the sins that have crucified the Savior. Then the Spirit of God through faith produces a new life in the soul. So the, the operative statement um, there is, if we do not resist this drawing, yeah. we shall be led to the foot of the cross in repentance for the sins that have crucified the Savior. So we, we may freely state that all is of God. And as someone once described it, when a reporter from the Times of the Universe comes to us in heaven, and uh, says, well, do you feel it was worth it, all your sacrifice and your obedience and your discipline? We will say, I never deserved any of this. This is beyond my expectations. Nothing I did uh, brought me here. This was all of grace and the glory of God. All is of him. Indeed, it certainly is, and I'm, I'm confident that's the way that we will feel because uh, we cannot do this on our own. Just no. like rebirth, just like being born physically, we can't make ourselves be born spiritually. So I would like to end our podcast with a prayer today. Dear God, thank you for taking the initiative in our lives. Thank you for sending your unique, beloved Son, to rescue us from our dilemma. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving up the joys of heaven to be with us in our dark hearts on this dark planet, bringing light and love and laughter into our lives. Oh, how we love you for your work in our hearts. And we are happy to remember it this morning. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you would like to contact us, you can at Rediscovering God on Facebook or Instagram, or send us an email to rediscoveringgod20 at gmail.com. We are encouraged to hear how this picture of God is making a difference for you. And if you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple, you can leave a review or rate the podcast so that others will become more aware of a God that is love, as revealed by Jesus Christ. Thank you.